Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 234 of the podcast. It's November 16th, 2015. Today's guest is Mitch Kahn. He's the president of Unionware, a manufacturer of hats, bags, and apparel in Newark, New Jersey. Now, I first learned about Mitch and his company because of a display that they had up at the Northeast Lean Conference recently, and I blogged about that. You can find a link to that and uh, other things by going to leanblog.org slash 234. Now, what caught my eye was their display of uh, political hats that they produce, including the famous red Make America Great Again hat that Donald Trump wears, uh, among hats produced by, uh, for other candidates. Now, beyond the surface of those hats is, I think, a really fascinating story about competing instead of making excuses. As Mitch explains here in the podcast, Unionware has been very successful, even though he's producing in one of the highest cost parts of the world. Unionware has had to compete against imports from China and lower wage southern states in the U.S., and Lean has been a major part of their strategy for improving productivity, reducing cost, and being fast to market. Now, whether you work in healthcare or manufacturing, I think you'll really love the story and the principles and the ideas uh, behind Mitch, his company, and his employees. So again, uh, to learn more, to see some videos and news stories about Mitch, go to leanblog.org slash 234. Mitch, hi. Thanks so much for being on the podcast and being willing to share your story today. All right. Good morning, Mark. So can you start off um, for the listeners, you know, introducing yourself and, and tell us a little bit about your company, Unionware? Sure. My name is Mitch Kahn. I'm the president of Unionware. I started the business in 1992. We're based in Newark, New Jersey, and we manufacture baseball caps from scratch, all sorts of headwear, and all sorts of sewn bags like backpacks, laptop bags, tote bags, garment bags, and messenger bags. Everything's 100% made in USA, uh, and everything is made with union labor. How, what, what prompted you to start the business? Um... Uh, so I started the business in 1992. Um, I bought a bankrupt baseball hat factory. Before then, I was working in investment banking, and I really didn't like it. I wanted to kind of be the client. I wanted to make stuff. So I spent about a year trying to come up with an idea to start a business, and then I came across this a uh, baseball hat factory that had been foreclosed on. It was very small. It was in Jersey City, New Jersey. And I came up with enough money to buy the equipment at an auction sale. And what I was going to do differently with that business was I was going to start selling baseball caps to the fashion industry, uh, which was not a thing in 1992. Uh, you couldn't go into the Gap or Macy's and buy a baseball cap back then. And I was actually pretty successful very quickly. Um, the idea caught on. We picked up customers like Ralph Lauren and Nordstrom's and IZOD, and we were helped by the growth of outlet stores at that time. It was a great item for all these outlet stores, which were popping up all over the country. Um, however, by 1994, our entire business model collapsed because all of those clients started manufacturing in China. It happened really quickly. I didn't see it coming. Um, it was only a couple of years after Tiananmen Square. I did not foresee that China was going to become this uh, giant in, in the market economy so quickly. And one of the first items they went after was baseball hats because it's almost all labor. So we needed to come up with a new business model pretty quickly. And uh, around that time, we came up with the idea of selling products 
specifically because they were made in USA and going after the made in USA market. Um, we, uh, we started with labor unions. We actually named the company Unionware because unions were, at that time, um, one of our natural, we were union shop. We were the only union shop that made baseball hats, and they were a natural market for us. And then uh, by the year 2000, we expanded into political campaigns when the Internet made it possible for um, Al Gore's campaign to raise money by giving a baseball hat away to every donor. And we had that contract. Um, that's been a big part of our business ever since. And we slowly moved into other markets that we found were buying American. Um, after our lean transformation in around 2007, we were competitive with non-union shops in the Deep South and were able to compete with those shops and even shops in Puerto Rico for military business, and now that's a huge part of our business as well. Uh, in 2007, we bought a bag factory, and um, we did a lean tra transformation of that factory. Now that's about half of our business. And we've uh, continued to expand our markets um, as the prices of imports continue to surge year after year while our domestic uh, pricing really remains flat, uh, we've been able to break into more and more markets, particularly uh, B2B markets that are looking to co-brand with the Made in USA label, which is really the most valuable brand in the world. And these kind of markets include manufacturers who sell their products as Made in USA, like a you know, Lincoln Motor Company sells their product is probably made in USA when they give a baseball hat or a bag away. They don't want that product to say made in China. Um, there's also a lot of socially responsible companies which give bags and hats away. Uh, Whole Foods sells these bags, uh, Google, a lot of other companies like that. And uh, they buy our products because um, the union label shows that the products were definitely not made in a sweatshop. And the Made in USA label shows that the products were not shipped halfway around the world to get here. Um, and uh, we've also been able to return into the fashion business over the last five years uh, for the first time since the early 90s. As we've been more competitive and as uh, fashion businesses have kind of shrunk the volume that they're ordering and going for more small batch manufacturing. Now, I mean, it sounds like there's, I'm curious to hear that, you know, that there's a sense of purpose here where in a lot of industries, companies go with the flow. People start going to China and Every, you know, all the lemmings follow, and everyone says, well, well, we have to go to China. Um, even before you discovered Lean, uh, why, why was that important to you to, to stay in New Jersey? Well, um, I always reminded myself of this the first 10 years I was in business, that if I wanted to make money, it would have been a lot easier for me to stay on Wall Street. Um, I didn't want to make money. I wanted to make products. I found the manufacturing process to be extremely rewarding. Uh, to come into work, have someone meet me with an idea, have them leave with a sample, and then figure out how to manufacture that sample, what machines to buy, what people to staff them with, what's the best way to make it, uh, how do we get it to the customer on time, have all of that figured out, and then go out in New York City and see people wearing and using their products. I found that all very rewarding. Um, so that was one part of it. I didn't want to go to China because I enjoy the maker experience. The second part of it was from the onset, I wanted to make sure that all of our employees were well compensated and had uh, the same benefits as white collar workers. Our union was the ladies garment, uh, the ladies uh, textile workers union. And um, they said we were the first company and we still are probably the only company that went into them before we started the business and said we wanted to start a union shop. Um, and because I knew we were going to give uh, our employees the benefits that union workers would earn anyway. 
So we might as well go to the union shop and take advantage of the relationships that the unions had um, and, uh, and use that for marketing purposes. Mm -hmm. So tell me, I'm curious then to hear more about Lean. You mentioned 2007. How did you first get introduced to the idea of Lean even before you got started applying it within Unionware? So uh, around 2004, we were faced with a lot of increasing expenses that were affecting us, but not really affecting the rest of the country. Uh, New Jersey was advancing, was raising its min minimum wage pretty significantly ahead of the federal minimum wage. We didn't pay minimum wage, but there's a ripple effect, and we, you know, we weren't paying people right off the street with no training, ten dollars an hour either. So uh, we were going to see our wages go up by about thirty to forty percent pretty quickly. Uh, we also had big increases in healthcare that were happening at that time. And most of our competition was non-union shops in, in, in uh, the South and in right-to-work states. And in most, in most non-union shops, there are, until Obamacare, there was no health insurance offered. Um, and we started to see, over a four-year period, we used to pay about $50 a worker for health insurance. By 2004, it was about 180 um, a month. That was a pretty big increase there. And then our real estate prices, right outside the New York area, started uh, going up pretty quickly around that time. So um, we, even though we were only competing by then for made-in-USA work, we couldn't compete with the South. And I was very concerned with our ability to remain a viable company. Um, so I started looking for a magic bullet, and I stumbled upon a Lean 101 seminar that was being run by New Jersey Manufacturers Extension Program. Um, and I took it, and it really blew my mind. Um, for any listeners that aren't familiar with this program, it's a pretty national program. It's a one-day class that's held usually by a, an NEP that trains uh, executives and factory, everyone from executives to factory workers on the whole lean process. And it, it puts people in a simulated factory making clocks. And at the beginning of the day, everyone's kind of left to fend for, for their own and use their own traditional methods to set up a production line and manufacture very simple clocks using these other executives, everyone who believes they know everything about manufacturing. And at the beginning of the day, a group of executives working together, all their brain power might produce about 15 clocks an hour. Throughout the course of the day, lean principles are introduced. Um, many lean principles are introduced one by one, and then they'll do another simulated flow where they uh, have the manufacturers take the principle that they just learned and apply it to this mini production line and their volume increases. And from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, this group of executives will maybe increase their production from 15 clocks to about three or 400 clocks an hour. And it really opened up my mind to what was possible to do at my factory. And I still remember when I came back to my factory, all I could see was the opposite of lean. I was so angry. I was so angry at everyone who worked for me for not seeing that they were doing non-value added work all day, forgetting that I had just gone 10 years without seeing any of that myself. Yeah, yeah. it becomes hard um, when, when you suddenly see waste and problems that you would have looked past before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, so uh, I, I just wanted to do everything at once, and of course you can't do that, um, but I did go back to NEP, and I hired them for a small project while they submitted a proposal for a grant from the New Jersey Department of Labor to do a lean transformation project for us. 
And I remember bringing in the consultant from NJMEP, and, and he met with our plant manager at the time and me. And the plant manager was very old school, um, very traditional manufacturing production line person with about 30 years experience. And he was very skeptical of the consultant, and all he wanted to know was how he was going to make the, our operators, machine operators, so faster. And the consultant said, I, I can't do that. I don't know anything about sewing. I'll be totally honest with you. And he said, well, how are you possibly going to improve our production here? And the consultant said, well, I'm only going to focus on what they're doing when they're not sewing. Um, I've worked in food companies. I've worked in paint companies. I've worked for car companies. And it's always the same things. All I do is look for those things, and I train your workers and I train your management to eliminate those things through designing the factory differently and, and training people differently on how to do stuff. And needless to say, the uh, plan manager was not convinced, um, but I brought him in anyway to do this project. And we started with a really simple project. He went for the low-hanging fruit, and uh, he took a look at our embroidery operation. Now, we run about uh, 12 embroidery machines here in the middle of our production process where we embroider our own hats and bags. And he spent a day observing that process, and he said to me, uh, how long do you think your machines are down between orders? And I, I, I knew this from the spreadsheet that I looked at when I bought the machines, and I said about 20 minutes, and he had a videotape, and he said, well, how about an average of about two and a half hours? And I didn't believe it. I looked at the videotape, and I saw that the machines were down, because I always walked out there, and I saw everyone working really hard and running around, and um, I couldn't understand why it was down for so long. And it turned out it was a very simple problem with a very simple solution. And this was something that was going on 15 to 20 times a day. That was the average number of orders that we were pushing through the embroidery department a day. Our embroidery manager um, was a Chinese national who spoke English, and our uh, embroidery operators were mostly uh, from uh, Spanish-speaking countries, and they spoke a little English. Um, but from the time our embroidery manager gave the instruction to say, hey, go pick out some dark green, some gray, and some red thread for this order, to the time they brought back the proper cones was about two and a half hours because she would go with the instructions from a customer to look for dark gray and dark green, and the employees would go out to the shelves of closed white boxes with the thread color names on them, and the names were like cement and soup and canary and all of these names, they'd have to open box after box to find the right color thread. If they were lucky, it was the thread the embroidery manager had envisioned in her mind would be appropriate for this particular logo. If they weren't lucky, they'd have to go back and come back with another armful of threads. Then uh, they would have to count out the threads. Threads were shipped to us in boxes of 12, but our machines had 20 heads on them. So they'd have to count them out. They'd have to find the beginning of each cone, and then they'd have to bring them to the machine, put them on this machine, and thread them, and then go back to the next color. So his first project was to take all of our threads and get rid of the names and get rid of the boxes, put everything in giant Ziploc bags, color code the factory thread department like a rainbow, um, and uh, refer to everything by color number and take all the threads and only inventory them in units of 20 so they wouldn't have to count them anymore. Um, and the bags would come out to the table. The embroidery machines would be loaded. When it was over, the, the cones would go back into the bags and we'd put back on the shelf. The whole process went from about two and a half hours to about 15 to 20 minutes pretty quickly. And we were really easily able to see the power of lean in that department. 
um, and we were sold. So we went ahead and, and uh, we got the grant, and we spent about two years putting in every facet of lean into the factory. Uh, we put in a 5S, which took a while. Um, we put in, uh, we did all sorts of Kanban. We did uh, single cell flow. And every one of these steps was a, a really a phenomenal success for us. Um, the 5S has been, that's something that we do every year. And um, it's, it's always kind of the same process. Everyone, it's something that the owner really needs to be involved in because there's no way anybody who works for me is ever going to throw a machine away, for example. Um, they, and I said, hey, we're never going to use that machine. No one's going to pay for it. Yeah. I just looked on eBay. We're just going to sell it for scrap. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody's going to do that. The, the, if I had a president of the company, I was the owner, the president wouldn't do that. Right. So I, I need to actively just you know, show up ready to get dirty for a couple of days, and we mm-hmm. go through the 5S, and, uh, and that's been successful for us. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the MEP program, and for people who aren't familiar with that, uh, you know, it's a federally – uh, sponsored, funded program, but uh, the MEPs operate at the state level. And, you know, uh, Mitch, uh, you know, some of the MEPs are actually doing work with healthcare organizations. The Ohio MEP, which works under the name TechSolve, they get out there and they're not just working with manufacturers, they're working with healthcare providers. And, you know, you talk about your healthcare costs going up. You, If, if you had a chance to go into the hospital, you would, I think, see I know you would see the parallels of why does it take so long between cases in the operating room? It's not a matter of you talk about sewers. Um, we're not asking the surgeons to work faster. We're just trying to maximize the amount of time during the day they can actually be surgeons. And, and that, makes, that makes a huge difference in healthcare and hopefully is going to help get you know, costs under control. There's big, big parallels there. Yeah, there are a lot of parallels uh, between healthcare and manufacturing. And uh, coincidentally, while we were going through the first lean transformation, my first son was born. And the consultant, Dave Hollinger, who shepherded us through this whole process, always tells this story about how when I came back from the hospital, I had all these pictures of all these ideas that I had come up with from looking at the hospital that, w- that it was uh, Mount Sinai in New York that was already implementing lean that I wanted to put in our factory. And we still use a lot of those uh, processes, color-coded folders. And um, one, of, one of the biggest improvements, there's so many lean improvements that we made here, but um, one, of the, one of the first principles that Dave taught us was to get rid of tables. Um, tables are evil. Uh, unless you happen to be using the table for a particular job, it's going to be filled with garbage on the top of it and filled with garbage underneath it because that's human nature. And I noticed that hospitals don't have any table. If anybody needs a table, they've got rolling carts. So uh, we gave everybody their own rolling cart and designated places on the rolling cart for everything that they would need, gave them a small personal personal space on the bottom and their own garbage uh, in there. And we still use that. And, I mean, forgetting about the productivity gains, the amount of space we gained by doing that mm-hmm. was, uh, was great. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a good general lean principle of, of put everything on wheels, be flexible so you can rearrange cells, rearrange the layout, make changes as customer demand changes to create different capacity. That's definitely, definitely a great, great lesson. Um, I was wondering if you could you know, elaborate a little bit. You know, there was a letter that you had posted at the Northeast Lean Conference, and I, I posted a picture of that. Um, on the blog, um, I was wondering if you could, you know, kind of just 
talk a little bit more about the idea, and I think a lot of manufacturers still don't get this. The idea, as you said in the letter, you, manufacturers can't create value by cutting labor costs. Um, you have to redeploy labor into creating more value. Can you, can you talk about what that's meant for you and the company? Um, okay, so we have a single-minded focus here on creating value. And once the people who work here understand what that is, um, then it becomes a mindset and it, became, it becomes very easy to implement, implement any of the features of Lean. Um, what a single-minded focus on creating value means is that we are here to create finished product that needs to go right into a box and get shipped to a customer. And that customer will only pay for any of the value that we added for that product. So um, if we're making products and we're putting them in boxes into inventory, we're actually not creating value at that time. We're just creating inventory. Um, if we are creating work in process because people are working faster, we can't turn that. That's not finished product that we can sell. We're not creating value. Now, if we are able to improve our productivity where we're creating a lot of value, um, and because of that, I lay people off, I'm actually not creating value by doing that. I'm, I'm kind of breaking even on the value proposition. If um, So creating value means if I have 100 people and they used to make uh, 1,000 hats a day, and now they can make 2,000 hats a day, and then 50 people can make 2,000 hats a day, I'm creating value by taking those other 50 people and creating another product with them. Um, so that, to me, that is creating value. Um, and uh, it is, um, you know, it, we, it's something that we very actively measure. I think that's one of the keys to our success is our ability to measure the amount of value that we create. And we have this process which we use, which is um, we do a lot of custom products. Baseball caps are very cookie cutter. That's only about half of our business. The other half is bags, and every bag that we make is different. I'll walk out one day and we'll be making tote bags. The next day we'll be making attaches. The next day we'll be making messenger bags. Um, got totally different value stream maps in them. Um, they've got totally different plant layouts. So the first process for us is to figure out by doing a traditional time study, what is the cycle time of this product? What is the amount of time that the worker is actually adding value to the product, just putting it, you know, taking two pieces of fabric and sewing them together, or cutting that fabric? That's really all that we can do to add value. Everything else that we do, which is looking for thread or waiting for instructions from a manager or um, redoing work or building up work in process that's not adding value. So if we take a attache and we know that that attache has 20 minutes of value of, of time that's just spent adding value to that product, we can then measure our output in terms of minutes of work created against the amount of time that our workers worked. So if we looked and we say, okay, based on our on our time studies, our workers created 10,000 minutes of work today, but based on our time clock, they worked 20,000 minutes. That means that they spent 50% of their time creating value. Um, we measure this all the time. It enables us to get our pricing in check. It enables us to know if we're meeting our margins just by walking out on the floor and seeing if there is work in process or if there are people moving around. And um, 
it's, uh, you know, it's kind of created goals for everybody to know whether the shop is lean and creating value or not. Now, when we started this process, um, when we were measuring with NEP at the beginning, it turned out before we did any lean stuff, we were only adding value about 20% or 25% of the time. Um, the rest of it was all spent on non-value added work. By the end of the process, we were adding value about 65% of the time. So our productivity almost tripled. Um, it was difficult for most of our uh, line workers to grasp the concept of what we were trying to, to sell to them. So we changed our measurement from percentage of time working uh, efficiently or, or adding value to hours per day. And then people finally started to get it. We said, hey, you know, you're all, believe it or not, you're only spending about two hours a day sewing, but you're getting paid for eight. We're asking you to spend about five and a half to six hours sewing and get paid for eight. And they got it, and they saw that that was actually a great bargain for them. Um, and, uh, and ever since we kind of made that, that change and we were able to retrain everybody on mean principles, we made our own videos uh, highlighting about 50 different non-value-added tasks that were regularly performed in the factory so we could help people identify them. Uh, we showed everybody the Lean Toast video. Mm -hmm. People are familiar with that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we got one in Spanish and Portuguese uh, and Chinese and showed it to everybody there. And, and people really started to get it. And now it's a mindset that is here. Well, and it, it, the, the one, I mean, there's many things that are interesting and impressive about your story. But I think one of them is your involvement as an owner. It seems like Lean is not just an operation strategy. It seems like it really is a key piece of the business strategy, how you're running the business and trying to be successful in the long term, right? Yeah, I think that that, um, that is, if I were to describe my job, I'm in charge of lean here. Um, everything else kind of takes care of itself, but lean is, is a battle against human nature. Um, and it, is, it constantly needs improvement. If you're doing lean properly, you need to continually improve because if you are able to clear up one bottleneck, there's going to be another bottleneck created somewhere else. Um, and you clear up that bottleneck in, in sales, then there's going to be a bottleneck in production. And you clear up that bottleneck, then you'll find a bottleneck in order processing. So um, I, leave this, I leave the growth on the top line up to the salespeople, mm -hmm. and I take care of the growth and capacity by implementing lean principles throughout our entire organization. Um, the last thing I was hoping we, we could talk about a little bit, you know, at the conference I saw in the uh, display hats that you've produced for Jeb Bush and for Hillary Clinton, and there was the, the bright red, very familiar um, Donald Trump uh, Make America Great Again hat. I was wondering if, if there were any stories particularly behind uh, the Trump hat. It seems like that came out of nowhere. And you know, I'm just curious uh, what, what the story was about getting that business and trying to deliver, uh, I'm sure, a, a large number of hats relatively quickly. Are there any stories that you can share about that? Um, yes. Well, uh, on the Hillary side, um, we have been doing work for a company called Financial Innovations for decades. Um, they've been managing the Democratic candidates for president for, for quite some time, ever since uh, Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a very strong relationship with them. And one of the reasons our company is regularly chosen to produce products for candidates is 
that we can produce goods quickly mm-hmm. um, because candidates don't buy for the long term. A lot of the the nominees for president, or a lot of the um, the primary candidates right now are. Um, they don't know if they're going to be around in two or three weeks. <laughs> right. So they're ordering every week. They're ordering instead of ordering twenty-five thousand hats at a time, they're ordering two or three thousand hats a week. Um, so uh, they need people who can turn things quickly, and and because of our lean principles, we are able to turn things quickly. We don't have a lot of work and process on the floor, so we're able to to rush orders out for people that need them. Mm-hmm. Another reason that we're selected is that we're a union shop, mm-hmm. and what the union label says to uh, political campaigns is that we've already been vetted mm-hmm. for any sort of social compliance issues. They let the unions take care of that. That's not so interesting to the Republican side, um, but we have done a ton of Republican work. We did all of the work for the John McCain campaign, and we're doing about four candidates right now. Uh, they just ask that we don't put a union label inside the hat mm-hmm. for whatever reasons. Yeah. Um, so uh, a second reason that we're um, chosen is that um, you know, we're, we have a reputation. Candidates don't want to get um, bitten by going to an unknown manufacturer of products mm-hmm. and finding out that the products were actually made overseas. And uh, our reputation as a military contractor mm-hmm. says to them that we have been vetted by the military and military goods need to be made domestically. Uh, not just all the labor, but even all of the components need to be sourced uh, domestically for those products. So I think that's why they kind of came to us. Um, we don't do work with the campaigns directly ever. It's, uh, it's risky to do that. We always go through advertising agencies. The particular agency that we had worked with with the Trump hat came to us from the uh, Made in USA Foundation, um, who had never, they just did an internet search on us. And uh, we're concerned after they had seen uh, these hats being made overseas and contacted that agency and said, there are plenty of domestic manufacturers of baseball caps. It's, you don't need to put <laughs> Make America Great Again on a hat that says Made in China. Right. You know, I think it's interesting of the three hats that were on display, the Trump hat was the only one that did not have Made in the USA uh, embroidered on the brim. But um, mm-hmm. um but I think it really speaks to the, the idea. I think uh, some people misunderstand lean as being about cost cutting when it's I think, you know, the, the primary thing is about improving flow. And as you've described so well here, uh, reducing setup times, uh, improving productivity as a way of being more responsive to customers. Um, that's that's a really powerful thing. And that can that can lead to cost being cost competitive, um, as it seems like you've done there at Unionware. Yes, it has, um, and in, in many ways that you wouldn't anticipate. Um, one thing that Lean has done for us and our dedication to measuring time and doing value stream maps for nearly every product that we manufacture is it's given us great visibility into the production process as kind of a, a data-driven process. Mm-hmm. And over the last five years, a big growth in our business has been in reshoring, where uh, companies, usually in the fashion industry or promotional industry, have been getting products made overseas. And now that, you know, in the past, our, our, our hats might have been 10 times as much as a hat made in China. Now they're like 25 or 30% more. Mm-hmm. Well, a company is, who is uh, considering switching is going to be much more likely to switch now. So we're constantly getting products that um, clothing companies and, and promotional companies have been getting made overseas and asked 
to quote on them for domestically made products. And we look at the way that products are made overseas, and it, to us it doesn't make any sense. Um, what we see in a lot of products made overseas is that in China, uh, I'll take a bag, for example, a tote bag, is ma- they throw labor at the tote bag to save on materials. Mm. Um, it's a dead giveaway when I see a tote bag that has a seam running along the bottom. If you cut that tote bag in two pieces, you're going to get a lot more bags out of a roll of fabric than if you just try to cut one big piece. But it adds a lot of labor and it makes a weaker bag. It makes no sense unless you were trying to save money on, uh, on materials. So we take these products and we re-engineer them in a way that is lean and uses the least amount of labor possible. And between our productivity increases and our ability to reduce the amount of labor that goes into the amount of cycle time that goes into the products, we're, we're really able to be competitive on a lot of products, yeah. particularly in, in the fashion business. Well, I, I really appreciate you being able to share your story, both at the, uh, the Northeast Lean Conference and um, for taking time to uh, talk with me here today, Mitch. Uh, again, my, my guest has been uh, Mitch Kahn, uh, president of uh, the company Unionware. Uh, Mitch, I was wondering if, if you want to talk about um, the company's website or, or any ways people can uh, learn more about your business or if you have any final thoughts uh, for the listeners. Um, sure. Um, our website is unionware, that's W-E-A-R, dot com. Um, we have over 40,000 made-in-USA products uh, that you can search for on that website and order directly off of the website. Um, and... Um, yeah, I just uh, would like you to contact me through the website if you have any questions about Lean. Um, I love uh, helping other manufacturers who are just getting started in it. And uh, if you are just getting started in the Lean process, um, I just want to warn you, it's never a good time to start. <laughs> but once you start, you will be rewarded. However, you'll never finish. You'll always be continuously uh, improving. Well, well said, and, and thank you, Mitch, uh, for, for that final thought and uh, for being a guest here today on the podcast. I really appreciate it. All right, you're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.